week of February 28th, 2021. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 531, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Plus. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Plus. Uh, you know what? Every time you use the plus sign or you say the word plus, you owe uh, Paramount, Disney, uh, I believe HBO, you're you're fine with. They're, they're, they're not going to come after you unless you use the word max, in which case Michael you Giltz, would, max. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then, then you'll owe them. Yeah, I know the plus sign. I, I have to say that is uh, that 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 little symbol. It's all is, the rage. It's is, all the rage. Yeah, nobody's. It just goes to show you how unoriginal Hollywood can be sometimes. <laughs> well, we're going to be original. What are we going to talk about this week? Wow, you're like right into it. You're like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's get. We have a lot to cover. Well, uh, I guess we're going to talk about uh, this week. You mean on Showbiz Sandbox? We'll catch mm-hmm. up with. Uh, well, we're talking about streaming because that's where the action is, baby. Viacom CBS made a lot of noise when it announced a bunch of programming being made for. Guess what? Paramount Plus, by the way. Yeah, we owe them money now. Uh, Meanwhile, Netflix doubled down on Korea, and Apple is adapting a classic series of crime novels. It's award season, of course, and the Art Directors Guild honored a bunch of films with nominations for its top prizes. But, you know, Michael, you say they're still missing the boat if they want to really influence the Oscars. And then last night, the Golden Globes happened, and we'll name the winners while wondering if anyone should actually care. On Inside Baseball, we'll talk about the big expose of the group behind the Golden Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Perhaps the most suspenseful moment of the night happened when it announced plans to address the HFPA's shocking lack of diversity. In fact, we'll talk with journalist Stacey Perman of the Los Angeles Times about their blockbuster story and the impact it's already had. Stacy wrote that story uh, along with Josh Rotenberg, so she'll be here to tell us how she put it together. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gilds to fill us in. Get this on last week's box office, and there actually is box office to speak of. That's true. There absolutely is. We're looking at box office around the world, and we have a link to the information we've pulled from different sources. Comscore, we love you. We miss you. As far as we can tell, the number one movie around the world by a country mile is Hi Mom, the China time travel comedy. $133 million made this week. It passed the $800 million mark, one of the biggest hits of all time in China and the biggest hit directed by a woman in that country. And certainly one of the biggest hits directed by a woman of all time. It's probably in the top 20 or top 10. You know how they measure it? They measure it in China is actually they say we are one Wonder Woman and half an Avengers. Okay. (laughs) Because it's $800 million. It's like, you know, didn't Avengers make $1.6 billion? So that would be half. Oh, never. No, it made more than that. It it made, it made two something. Yeah. yeah, 2.3. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. At number two around the world is Detective Chinatown 3, the globe-spanning film set in Chinatowns coming soon to a Chinatown near you. It grossed $49 million this week. It's at $720 million. So as was predicted in the first week when these movies came out, Detective Chinatown 3 made a lot more money than High Mom, but High Mom was growing day after day after day, whereas Detective Chinatown 3 was trending downward. It had not really delivered that well, but it had a lot of big fan base. People showed up for it. 
but Hi Mom has passed it handily and is still going strong. This week it made three times as much money as Detective Chinatown 3. It's now grossed more than Detective Chinatown 3, and it's not done yet. $1 billion is not out of the question for that movie. At number three around the world is some very good news for Hollywood. Tom and Jerry, the live-action animated hybrid, the reimagining of the classic cartoon duo, the cat and the mouse, always at odds with each other, but they both agree it's good to make money. $39 million at the worldwide box office. The second best opening in the COVID pandemic era in North America, with about half of the screens open. It made $14 million in the United States. It made $13 million in China and the rest of the money it made in other markets around the world. But it made money. It opened. A couple points here. Uh, One, 42% of the screens in the U.S. are open. And every time I went to HBO Max all two times this this weekend, uh, that film, Tom and Jerry, was front and center. You could not avoid it. And yet, it still managed to make $14 million in movie theaters with only half of them open. That's And that's not because people are dying to pay to see a movie when they could watch it for free at home. That's both because of the HBO Max footprint and the fact that people are desperate to get out of the house. They went to see The Croods, A New Age, when it had been out for months. If there was another movie available, they might have gone to see, you know, Raya and the Last Dragon, if that was in theaters and not on Disney+. Plus. So, Tom and Jerry, this is not a proof that, you know, doing both day and date is a good idea. No, I it's would agree proof with you. that people are desperate to see movies in the theater, even when they're available in their homes. Now, so, a, a point about Tom and Jerry opening in China, and that's mm-hmm. not, it has nothing to do with that content and China. It has more to do with the fact that movie going in China, uh, most people would see one movie a year and it would be over the Lunar New Year. And what Tom really? and Jerry, yeah. Mo- I mean, you're, you're talking, talking about, you're talking about billions of people. So, People, well, 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 we're talking about the movie going public in China, I think goes to more than one movie a year. It's the second biggest market in the world. Right. However, when you're talking about like the average, it would it was one movie per year, mostly during the Lunar New Year. What they're hoping is a movie like Tom and Jerry will get families out and therefore they'll they'll start thinking right. of going to the movies outside of the Lunar New Year. There are other big weeks of box office. We cover the box office all the time in China. It's not only during the Lunar New Year. It happens all year long. There are big movies making lots of money in China. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying there aren't. Outside of the Lunar New Year. Just like there are lots of movies that make money here in the U.S. and in North America and in Europe, where and yet people don't ever go to the movies. So when you average it out per capita, the movie movie going in China is actually one per year. One movie per year. That's that's ridiculous. You're looking at three, four hundred million people who are living in near poverty where they don't even have access. They couldn't afford to go to a movie if they wanted to. Counting them in this mix is silly. People thousand miles, two thousand miles away from Beijing who are living in subsistence level living. Yes, they're not going to the movies this week, but there's a big, healthy movie going public that goes more than once a week. Once a week, you mean? I mean, once it a goes year. more than once a year. Yeah, movie going <laughs> oh, in wow. China. For the people who go to the movies in China, it is not a once a year big event. Like, oh, let's go to that one movie. There's a lot of people who don't go to the movies. They can't afford. They're barely living. <laughs> yes, China just claims to have lifted a hundred million people out of subsistence level living in 2020. They say a hundred million people are now making more than $2 a day, which means in 2019, they made less than $2 a day. Clearly, they're not going to the movies, those people. Right. So averaging it out is a little silly comparing it to the United States, where pretty much 
the vast majority of people can afford to go to a movie once a year if they chose to. Many hundreds of millions of people in China can't. So I think it's silly to... to they're, well, they're I'll have very to, different markets with a ton of people who can't even begin. They're not even close to a movie theater, much less they're living on less than two dollars a day. So yeah, that's that's not a I real will, reasonable comparison. We are why we've but you listen to this show, don't you, Sperling? Uh, don't well, you? I don't listen to it. I, no, I right. yeah. well every week we report <laughs> yes, on I the will. box office in China. Is box office in China a ten day a year phenomenon? No, no, God, no, no, no. And it's not because most people in China decide to go. It's because it's because well, people it's in like, China who can afford to go to a movie and there's a movie theater near, they go to the movies regularly, just like they do in the U.S. There are people in the U.S. who go to a lot of movies. There's people who only go to one or two or three. That's just like in a well-developed market. That's that's the comparison we're making. China is a healthy market. People go all year long, not just during the Lunar New Year. It's not true to suggest people only I go once find, a year to Lunar New Year. I will find the piece. And, well, well, yeah. And you can take a bit. You can say they sold a billion tickets. You can average it up by the number of people in China and say, I guess everybody goes once a year. That's just misleading. It's not very good analysis of the market that we're looking at. Anyway, at number four around the world is Endgame, the Andy Lau thriller that made thirty million dollars this week because China's a really good market and people go to the movies all the time. And it made that seventy six <laughs> million dollars total. At number five is A Writer's Odyssey, the action fantasy in China, twenty eight million dollars this week. It's at one hundred and fifty million dollars. We don't know the budgets for. Endgame, A Writer's Odyssey, and the other few movies we have from China. We'd love to know if they're profitable yet. If you know what their budget is, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle, or you know what? Follow us on Facebook or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. That's right. At number six is an animated film. It's New Gods, Nulja Reborn. That made another $12 million, mostly in China. That's at $66 million and counting. Then number seven is Boonie Bears, The Wildlife, another family-friendly, low-budget animated series, I believe. That made $10 million this week. That's about to hit $100 million. So that's doing quite well. Then there's a big drop down to The Yin Yang Master, which made $3 million this week. The Little Things, the Denzel Washington film, that made $3 million this week. And The Crudes, A New Age, which is above $150 million worldwide. That's all the information we have. So if you're in France or you're in, I think this week, India is having a big new movie opening up. I think this is the week where there will be a new wide release in India. We're very excited by that. We're going to be paying attention to that market. If you've got a movie in your market that's making over a million dollars, you know, let us know at the information we just gave you. And for those playing at home, we've got half an hour until our guest joins us. We've got to get through the rest of the show so we can get to inside baseball in time. <laughs> yes. So we're going to skip over this and skip over that. And uh, some, some people made news. Other people didn't. Uh, and we're done. Yeah. Run. Uh, oh, by the way, some people are no longer with us. And let's um, talk to our guest. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Viacom CBS, a lot happened there, right? What what was happening? Was it a, an earnings call, an investor's presentation? What no. was going on for Paramount Plus? Well, Paramount, Viacom, basically, which owns Paramount and CBS, uh, they saw what Disney did. They said, what, you did a four-hour presentation uh. that was just on streaming? <laughs> we're going to try and top that. First of all, we're going to put a plus at the end of our name. We're going to launch in March, and we're going to do a three. We could only do a three-hour. We couldn't do a four-hour. They could only do a three-hour sh show, but in doing so, they talked about— If they about, had Star Wars, they could have done a four-hour show. That's true. If they had Star Wars—but they had Star Trek. 
Mm-hmm. And and yet, I don't know. So here's the thing. So, so what, are, what are the numbers? What are the numbers? What do they have right now? I think they have 30 million paying subscribers. But my question is, that's CBS All Access, isn't it? Showtime, that's, that's, that's plus. CBS All Access plus whoever subscribes to Showtime over the top plus whomever subscribes to BET plus. Yes. But the vast majority of that is CBS All Access, which is going to be rebranded by the time you hear this episode, perhaps into Paramount plus. And they're shooting for 65 million subscribers by 2024. Right. Or as, uh, as Disney would say, oh, you mean what we had back in last February? <laughs> sure, and no problem. Income is income. They've never had people paying them directly like this before, so it's a nice change of pace. No cable providers getting a cut. Uh, no exhibitor is getting a cut at the box office. No home video seller like Blockbuster is getting a cut. It's money going directly to Viacom CBS. So they're like, you know what? 65 million people sending us a check every month. That sounds like a good idea. And so they have lots of programming. Streamers used to be the home of classic TV shows you could watch on demand. Stuff like The Office and Grey's Anatomy. Say, oh, I, want to, I want to binge on Friends. Well, now they're the home of reboots. So what they're boasting about is they have a library that they're going to have of 2,500 plus movies. They're going to have 30,000 TV episodes. So, you know, one show with 100 episodes counts as a hundred episodes they're gonna have more than a thousand live sporting events during the year and they're gonna have 36 original series debuting in 2021 bring on the reboots yeah it's unbelievable i mean even fraser fraser uh with kelsey Grammer, and yet not yet david hyde pierce surely they want him on board as well criminal minds rugrats with the original voice cast a yellowstone prequel a live action door the explorer a live action fairly odd parents inside amy schumer she has two tv shows going on reno 911 some sort of event trevor noah star trek multiple star treks lots of star treks including Star Trek Prodigy, an animated series for kids, which will air on Paramount Plus and then go to Nickelodeon. TV shows based on movies like The Italian Job, Parallax View, Flashdance, Love Story, Fatal Attraction, and a new show based on a video game called Halo. So here's my question. Fatal Attraction, a TV show based on Fatal Attraction? I see. Yes, I see an anthology series. Yes. Each season is a new relationship with a new twist and turn. That's the only way that works. Yes. Uh, Otherwise, you're boiling a rabbit this week, a chicken next week. By the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the movie Fatal Attraction, starring Glenn Close and Michael Douglas from the 1980s. And trust me, you'll never look at rabbits the same way again. Or roller coasters. Uh We're going to get to the big news right about now. They're going to have some movies exclusively on Paramount Plus, like Beavis and Butthead. I never figured out why they didn't make another theatrical, because their first one was actually good. Beavis and Butthead do America. Made money. Paranormal Activity, Pet Cemetery. They've got to deal with epics, which means that pay channel, they will be sharing a bunch of movies. Epics gets an exclusive 90-day pay window. And then the movies come to Paramount Plus as well. And that means they're getting access to movies like from Sony, MGM, Lionsgate. They also invested in Miramax a number of years ago. So their movie library will have James Bond, The Hunger Games, and a bunch of Miramax titles that weren't made by Paramount. They're going to have Mission Impossible 7 and A Quiet Place. They will stay theatrical, but they will be coming to Paramount+. Plus. And this is the big news. They announced a window, not Warner Brothers Day and Date window, not Disney Plus saying we're just going to go straight to Disney Plus and skip theatrical entirely. Not Universal's 17-day window where three weekends after a movie opens up, 
basically you turn around and the movie's playing on your on your streamer. No, they announced a 45-day window for tentpole movies and a 30-day window for smaller flicks. That is the new window that Paramount is going for. What's interesting about all of the windows is that none of them were ever negotiated, as far as I can tell, with exhibitors. They've just announced them. And so you don't like it? Fine. Yeah, interesting. Which which is kind of interesting because you know if you read when the uh, Justice Department got rid of the Paramount consent decree, they specifically <laughs> said, "Oh well, it doesn't matter because you know exhibitors there's 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 competition and and the studios aren't gonna like just barrel right over." Oh, that that was like <laughs> one of the legal decisions that literally came back almost instantaneously to be. Completely bogus. It's just it's such a it's so wrong headed that I mean, let's put it this way: what? the, the exhibit- decree is gone. Yes, the exhibitors, movie theater operators, and by the way, the cable operators. They it, the cable operators have more power because they have contracts. Okay, but those contracts are slowly fading and slowly being you know run run Dismantled. out. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you are a cable operator or a cable provider, you're kind of screwed because what you have is your supplier coming around and saying, you know what? We're going to sell all of our, 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 our products out of the back of our car. And the same is true with exhibitors. You know, the the exhibitors have absolutely no leverage. There's nothing they can do. Except the fact that movies can make a billion dollars at the box office or go straight to streaming and, you know, Enjoy. Not make, yeah, <laughs> not make a billion dollars. What I what I think interesting. They've made the same mistake that everyone else makes. They have a shorter window, a th- shorter theatrical window for smaller movies. They've got it exactly opposite. If if you're going to have a shorter theatrical window, it should be for the blockbusters. Smaller movies need more time to gain an audience, to spread word of mouth, and to make their money back and to reach their full potential. A lot of big. You know, tentpole movies, they can make back most of their money in 30 days. Smaller movies actually need 45 days or longer. But I'm glad they chose 45 days for the big temples. I think everyone should take 45 days because we've broken down the numbers. We've talked about this off the air. I wrote a story for you. You haven't published it yet. But when you look at the numbers, if they cut the theatrical window from 90 to 45 days, the vast majority of movies would be fine by then. You know, you'd be making most of your money. And if a movie was still making money hand over fist, like Knives Out, you probably would pause before you put it on a streamer, right? You know, you'd be One stupid would hope. One to, would hope. To turn, off, to turn off the spigot. So, you know, I'm glad they chose 45 and 30 days. They really should switch them or at least make the 30 days 45. 45 across the board. That's really smart. You know what? People don't know Windows. People are not expecting to see a movie that plays in a theater that same day or a week later on their streamer device. They're not geared towards that. That's not their expectation. 45 days is really quick. That's two and a half months. Ten weeks after a movie opens, it's playing on my TV. That's extremely fast. Wait, wait, wait. 45 days is not two and a half months. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One and a half months. Yeah, that's extremely fast. That's super quick. (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's seven weeks, right? About seven weeks. Six and a half, seven weeks. That's extremely fast. So it's a mistake. Why do you think people want movies or expect $200 million movies in their home, you know, three weekends after it opens up in theaters? Then you're just telling them, don't bother. 
People well, will go see the- Tom and Jerry right now because they're desperate. But you're going to feel like an idiot if you're paying $10, $15 a month for HBO Max and then go to the movies to see Tom and Jerry. Eventually, you're going to say, this is stupid. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Jim Genopolis, by the way, who used to be the head of Fox and is now the head of Paramount, he's the one that uh, they kind of you know brought out to make this announcement. And he came out, and this is indicative of how the message was mixed. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is, came out, he said, you know, when I grew up in Greece, my grandfather used to bring me to the movies, and it was such a great experience, and we loved going to the movies. It didn't even let's matter. let's end that. He's <laughs> like, now let's talk about how, well, when you go to the movies now, it'll just be like what you're watching in your living room. Uh, <laughs> it, he looked, it looked like a hostage video. <laughs> he looked like he was like they're forcing me to say this guys don't please don't don't, don't hate me uh well, they're fil- they're f- mm-hmm. i mean i don't know what what you do uh right. if you're jim giannopoulos you basically have corporate overlords this is what they want i don't know when this will end or how it will end or what you know i will say this exhibitors everybody asked the question well now that the paramount decree is gone uh will studios buy movie theaters and I don't know the answer to that question, and I, I doubt it. But I can tell you this. Movie theaters better start finding other content to play. Well, they have been for years. They have a, lots of other content. They have live concerts. They have business meetings. They have old movies. They have, you know, live chats with, you know, rock star, You know, they do all sorts of live content. It's not remotely replacing what they get for movies. And there's no new live content that they're going to discover. They have boxing events. They do all sorts of things. Oh, no, no, no. I meant, I meant in, other films. In other words, you can't... Other films? Well, that's... What are you talking about? Other well, films than the films made by Hollywood? Well, there's, there's the rub. Well, what are you talking about? What do you well, mean other I don't movies? know. If you're in England, they made a thousand movies last year. Literally 970 movies they had in 2019, released in 2019 from England. What? Yeah. They made 970 movies in England that were released theatrically. Would you like to share a link for that? Because we have about a thousand movies released in the U.S. theatrically each year, and that includes every movie and includes one documentary showing for one week in anthology archives. I don't, there's not a chance in hell there were a thousand original U.K. films released theatrically in the U.K. I think UK. It, it's the that's BFI not, that's, that's uh, I'll that, have that's, to find the, the, that, the link. That does not that. include U.K. only films. Maybe that, that includes Hollywood films. There's no way. That's what we release in New York every year, about a thousand movies. And that includes every movie from around the world that plays in New York and has at least a one week theatrical release. There's no way the UK film industry generated 1000 movies that were released theatrically. It's nowhere near as big as the entire world market playing in New York. Well, here's what I'm trying to get at. Well, they they don't have enough. We, we, we show, we show British movies in the U S already. So theater owners are happy to show a room with a view and any movie made in the UK and, and gangsters and whatever it may be. So they're, they're happy to show movies from all over the world. They do that. Now parasite won the Oscar for best picture. They have embraced international movies and show them all the time. At my local movie theater, AMC, they show Bollywood movies. There's a new Bollywood movie every week back when movies were being released. Not right now during COVID, but every week there was a new film from Bollywood. You would see documentaries on one of their 20 screens. You'd see in a foreign language film and you'd see Wonder Woman on 10 screens. But yes, they have embraced all these things. There are no secret programming for them to turn to and fill up their screens. They're never going to match what Hollywood offers. And I think, why wouldn't a studio buy a theater? Instead of giving them 50%, you'd get 100%. 
And you can then you can put it on your streamer. You make the money in the theater, 100% of that $400 million you make in the U.S., and then you put it on a streamer. If they're going to let me buy it, I'm sure as hell going to buy a theater chain. Why not? I'm calling up Jim Giannopoulos right now. <laughs> yeah. Jim, well, Netflix, get, your, ne- get your checkbook ready. <laughs> Netflix has embraced uh, big uh, international content. They are now spending, they say, next year $500 million in original Korean content. They're mo- approaching 4 million subscribers in that country. And they're saying, we're doubling down. They know they are investing. They have uh, offices all over the world. They are investing in original content because not only does it work in that country, but when it's really good, it can catch fire and reach both Koreans and other parts of the world and people around the world where Korean TV shows and dramas and movies and music have been really influential and really popular. So they're doubling down and saying, we love Korea. We want to be big in that territory and we want to create that content, which we know will play worldwide. And that's why. In my household, we're looking to kill our cable deal and go over the top. We spend $220, $220 a month on our cable bill, which includes Wi-Fi, cable, and like all these sports bundles. And now, looking at the bundles available from Hulu and YouTube, we look like we can get $130 a month for our Wi-Fi and our over-the-top cable bill, and we'll be paying the same amount of money. You'll so be, we'll, you'll, be you'll paying have, hundred, uh, we'll be paying $130 a month and saving $90 a month, almost $100 a month shaved off. And of course, we're already paying for Netflix, Paramount Plus, Peacock, Disney Plus, Hulu, HBO Max. We get all that stuff. So, you know, there's money to be made there. You can get a bundle from YouTube. You can get all those channels I, I announced, plus BritBox and Acorn and Hulu, and pay $72 a month for that. So add that to your 65. You're still looking at $130, $140 a month for your cable package. Well, I mean, think about it the way, well, NBC and Peacock or the BBC and, you know, the way they're, well, the BBC doesn't, doesn't get uh, a carriage fee. But uh, the way some of these networks are looking at it is, you know, if I went, to ca- through cable, I'd get $3 per subscriber per, per year. If I can get these people directly, I can make that $3 or $4 or maybe $5. And you know what? They're paying me directly. I have a relationship with that customer now. Exactly. And the Art Directors Guild has a relationship with the award season because we're in the midst of that period right now. And they just announced their nominations for their top categories. Those include their top five picks in period, Art Direction, Fantasy Art Direction, Contemporary Art Direction, and Animated Art Direction. If you go through their list, and we have a link in our show notes, and we include the movies that they're honoring, Mank, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, Tenet, Wonder Woman. I'm not naming them all. Defy Bloods, uh, Palm Springs, Promising Young Woman. You'll find Soul, The Croods, A New Age. You'll Wolf Walkers. You'll see a lot of the movies that are in the conversation for the Oscars. But I really do feel... The art directors are missing a beat. It's great to have a breakdown for all those categories. It's a big challenge and a very different challenge to make art direction for an animated movie versus a fantasy film versus a contemporary film. But if they want to influence the Oscars, they need an overall top five. They need to have their top picks for art direction, whether it's one from period and one from, you know, fantasy and three from contemporary or whatever it may be. But they need to pick a top five because then they can say these are the five best films when it comes to art direction no matter the genre they can honor all those little genres because it does matter it does make a distinction those are unique challenges but they need a top five overall everyone should do this the sound editors just came out with about 30 or 40 nominations in sound and all these different ways shapes and forms 
they need to pick a top five and say, here what are you're saying five is they need a, best movies. You're saying they need a mm-hmm. best in show. That's right. They need a best in show because those categories are meaningful. They matter to them. But if they want to get everyone's attention, you can't list 40 movies with sound editing nominations. You need to name a top five or a top 10. And art direction needs to do the same. I think if they want to have an influence, they need to step it up. Right. Now, we're normally we would cover Golden Globes here, but we're actually going to be doing that with our guests. We're not going to talk about the awards with our guests. I don't think we're going to talk about the awards with them, are we? We're going to talk about the story they did. I think the awards should take about three minutes. Not even. Because it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't really matter. Nobody who voted on the Golden Globes is voting for the Oscars. You can talk about momentum and this and that and the other thing. You think Borat's going to get a Best Picture nomination? I don't. I don't think so. Now, no. Nomad, Nomadland, Minari, Soul, those are all films that are in the conversation. Chloe Zhao got a one for Best Director. She's a woman. She's a person of color. Those are all big breakthroughs for her. TV, it's all white. Shit's Creek, The Crown, The Queen's Gambit, those were the big winners for sure. Now, their winners are actually pretty darn diverse. It's not bad. When you look at the acting categories and best director, uh, you know that's that's doing pretty good, especially if you include Sasha Baron Cohen, who is uh, Israeli descent. Um, so, you know, if he's sort of a person of color, you got three to four of the six acting winners are people of color. So, what, what, that's and Chadwick, good. Chadwick Boseman won for best actor in a drama for Ma Rainey's. But do you think that that's just going to be a run this year? That he he's no. just going to no, like no, no, no. Because, of course, it's posthumously. Right. I don't think it's a given by any stretch of the imagination. No. Now, Jodie Foster won Best Supporting Actress for The Mauritanian. Let me ask you this. Uh, I didn't know that she had – I mean, everybody in Hollywood knows Jodie Foster is is gay. But I did not realize that she was publicly out. Oh, yeah. She came out many years ago. Yes. Okay. Because she accepted the award with her wife. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was very cute. They, they both were in their pajamas with their dog. And she thanked Aaron Rodgers, of all people, the, the quarterback, because I guess he got engaged to her co-star. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. No, it was great that she uh, finally realized that her private life can remain private. But that doesn't mean she shouldn't be public about her sexual orientation because it matters. And she finally came out publicly and said, yes, I'm gay. You can understand why she would be even more concerned about keeping her life private because of things that have happened in the past. So, you know, every big Hollywood star gets weird stalkers and things like that. She's had it worse than most. So it was very brave and good of her to finally come out publicly. Everybody knew she was gay. She was open professionally, but not publicly for the general public. So, yeah, that happened a number of years ago, and it was great to see. Do you think we actually need to remind people of of I don't I can't even remember is not Mark David Chapman but whoever it was that that tried to shoot uh, Ronald Reagan the president at the time uh, you know was kind of like upset. No, with I don't. Jody I don't think every time Jodie Foster does something in public like make a movie or win an award, you need to remind the world of the stalker that tried to shoot President Reagan. No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, you just <laughs> well, why, did, so. why should you? No, I didn't. You did. You forced it. No, you should not have to mention something that happened 50 years ago every time she wins an award or in a positive way comes out and is, is openly public about her sexual orientation. What did you but, think of the show itself, though? The, uh, the Golden Globes, that is. I've never watched it, ever. Not once. Okay. It's stupid. I, why bother? It's a waste of time. So is the, all the energy we've given to discussing their awards. I've always felt that. It's a fake award show with people who don't have any influence. It shouldn't be discussed. But we well, should keep discussing misconduct sexual misconduct. That's right. Brett Ratner, yeah. we talked about last week, had a comeback. He has a Millie Vanilli biopic. However, 
the following when everybody said, really? He did nothing to... Oh, so the studio or the, the, the people backing the movie Millennium said they're out. However, Ratner says he does have private equity investors who are fully funding the film now, so it's still a go. On oh, more positive... Right. Um, yes, yeah, so the movie isn't dead yet, apparently. On more positive news, The Simpsons have finally said, yes, okay, fine. Uh, black characters and people of color will not be voiced by white people ever again. <laughs> they re re recast the voice of a doctor on the show. That will be played by a person of color. Creator Matt Groening says he, quote, didn't have a problem with white people voicing black characters, end quote, which is, of course, part of the problem. <laughs> well, but I would say at the same time. You of know, course you didn't have a problem. You're white. Well, I, I would also say that, you know, uh, black people could voice white character. In other words, get the right voice for the character. It doesn't matter who it is. If they're purple, it doesn't matter. No, that's why you're wrong. That's the whole point of the thing. It's like there are very few roles for black actors or even voice actors. And when there finally is a black character and you're going to cast a white person to do it instead of a black person, really? <laughs> you don't think there's a good black person who can voice a doctor on The Simpsons? Hello, Homer. You have a heart problem. That can, You can't <laughs> find a black actor who can say that? Stop. No, that's Homer, just, put the donuts down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just wrong well uh you know something that uh, isn't in our show notes but probably should be is uh you know we always say when when things go wrong we we talked about bruce springsteen and a dui that he got yeah well it turns out uh his blood alcohol level was 0. 0.00002 and and sure enough they dropped that case and he did actually plead well, guilty to the one thing he admitted to right away which is yeah no i was with the fans and they asked me to take a shot and i took the shot and he, he took two shots of tequila and was about to get on his bike and they said hey right. whoa you're in front of cops and you're taking shots of tequila not cool that's what right. they said so yeah we weren't there we don't know he pled guilty to that charge uh, of, of public you know drinking alcohol in public in an area where you're not supposed to and and that's good so we're glad he wasn't driving doing anything dangerous i believe the reported alcohol level is only a reported we don't have that from the court records that's just from what people are saying but uh, it's not clear to me. But yeah, we're glad that nobody got hurt. He didn't do it. He doesn't have any history of drug or alcohol abuse. So good to know. And people can get redeemed, right? Hollywood's, you know, the video of him promoting Jeep is back online on YouTube. Jeep said, okay, good. You know, we're glad he didn't do anything reckless and bad. And we're wholly supportive. And, you know, we're glad that he recognizes that drunk driving is not good. <laughs> and people can get redeemed. If Hollywood can take money off you, they're going to do it. Mel Gibson. Starring in a new movie, directed by Joe Carnahan, and starring Naomi Watts. She's a big star, so this is not a B-level movie. It's called Boss Level, and uh, either it means Naomi Watts is looking for some work and not finding it, or Mel Gibson is, you know, again, directing and acting in movies that people are going to fund and make because they think they can make money. So don't despair, Brett Ratner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll never forget, this was like in the heyday of, if you want to call it that, but mm -hmm. uh, back when Mel Gibson was kind of a pariah mm -hmm. and he was in the grocery store in my neighborhood and the, a hush fell over an entire <laughs> grocery store, an entire grocery store. There were people in the back who were probably like, what's going on? Something feels weird. There's like a weird energy here who had no idea that he was out in the front buying flowers. This was like way a long time ago, like 2012, 2011. Mm -hmm. And even my kids at the time, who were very tiny, they were like, "Who's that man?" There's something What's weird going on. <laughs> yeah, they were like, they, even they noticed that like people were like, you know, steer clear of that guy. 
<laughs> so, uh, we, you know, we're looking at reboots and remakes now. Speaking of comebacks, here's a project that has been around for years. It's it's the Easy Rollins series of novels by Walter Mosley, a great series of novels beginning with Devil in a Blue Dress, some of the best fiction of the last 50 years. I highly recommend it. A great movie was made out of it with Denzel Washington. Oh, I wish they had been able to make more movies, but it didn't make much money. At Denzel Washington, Jennifer Beals, terrific movie. Um, but now, finally, after multiple attempts to make it happen, there is a, a TV series in the works at Apple. Now, Sperling. Easy Rollins, famous black character living in Los Angeles in the 50s or in 1950s L.A., Correct. noir, yeah. race, very exciting. Who do you see in the lead? Uh, Tom Holland? <laughs> uh, no, because it's not a voice. Oh, it's not a voice. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. All so right, you so actually yes, have to cast somebody uh, who looks the part. Tell it to Charlie Chan. So, yes, yeah, so they're they're doing that series. I'm very excited for that. And they're doing an adaptation of Spirited Away. The Miyazaki classic animated movie is coming to the stage. John Caird, a great stage director from the UK, I believe, he is working on a stage play that will debut in Japan. And I don't know what the idea or the structure is or how they're going to tackle it. I'm assuming there will be puppetry, probably Bunraku, since they're in Japan. But who knows? But I'm very excited about that project. You know, not uh, not every reboot or remake makes you roll your eyes. Sometimes they're well worth doing and very exciting to see. Do you have What have you been seeing on TV, Sperling? We do have our Nielsen combined streaming numbers. You know, I've been watching I'm mostly movies. Mm-hmm. What have so. you been seeing? Uh, well, again, you know, I, I watched uh, The Little Things, speaking of Denzel Washington, because it was uh -huh. going to be taken off of HBO Max. And I live in Los Angeles, where movie theaters are not allowed to open uh, and have not been allowed to open for almost a full year. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see that before. It was it any good? You know, it got a lot of uh, flack for being, oh, you know, it's not, it's just, you know, so predictable and it's, you know, just there for entertainment sake. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes movies are just entertaining. And yes, it wasn't a great movie, but it wasn't a horrible movie. It was fine. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, speaking of the top 10 on the Nielsen combined streaming numbers, we're looking at the end of January, January 25th through January 31st. We've got a breakdown for categories like best original series, the top 10, the most watched uh, acquired series, things like The Office, and the most watched movies, both original and acquired. We've made a combined top 10 with the most watched properties from the last that week, and they're all from Netflix. So that's pretty predictable. Topped by Criminal Minds. Uh, which they're talking about doing a reboot of that show. I'm not quite sure why it hit the charts this week. Maybe there was a final season that dropped. I don't know. But I do know this. The entire top 10 came from Netflix. Three of the top 10 overall are originals. And five of the top 10 are of the top 10 movies are originals. So only one of the top movies made the overall top 10 for the simple fact that a movie is usually about two hours long, so it's harder to rack up the minutes that will get you into the overall top 10 when you're competing with a show like Grey's Anatomy, which has 100 plus episodes people can watch. So, Well, and that, that was actually one of the jokes during the Golden Globes when uh, Amy Poehler said, you know, t movies, those are the, the, the two hour things that we say we don't want to watch on our phones, but instead, because we don't want to sit there for two whole hours, but instead we'll watch five one hour <laughs> episodes of a, of a tv show back to back <laughs> right so even even on uh, even on uh, the uh, movie section the the number one film which made the top 10 is the next three days but number two is the dig a british film which i keep hearing a lot about i know a number of people who've watched it and kind of like it if you're in the merchant ivory vein that rafe fine film the dig is probably worth checking out 
and six of the top 10 and seven of the top six of the top the top six movies and seven of the top 10 movies are all on netflix but disney plus had the other three moana soul and frozen 2 so you can see how those it's frozen 2 why is that suddenly trending on Disney Plus? I have no idea. Or it tells you how movies are not where it's at when people are watching streaming. They much more want to watch TV shows. I don't know. But Soul is number eight. Moana is ahead of it at number seven, a movie that's been out for years, much less Frozen 2. But they're trending. They're there. People are maybe they're being promoted heavily on Disney Plus. I don't know the reason why they would suddenly be in the top 10 of mo most watched movies. But anybody complaining, hey, that doesn't include HBO Max. That doesn't include this, that or the other. Well, work with Netflix and make your info available because I think charts like this are a big deal. They really matter and they help people figure out what they want to watch and what's trending. You know, I think you want me to talk more about charts or you want me to talk about deals that are big and maybe some that are not. In fact, that means it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, I mean, let's face it, this is a big deal, and we could have covered it last week, but it wasn't official last week. Australia passed a law officially this past week requiring Google and Facebook to compensate media companies for the stories being shared and linked to on their platforms. Both tech companies fought back against the proposed law, resulting in a number of amendments and even an agreement that gives them more time to strike deals with major content providers. Everyone is claiming victory, while Tom, not Tom, Tim Berners-Lee insists laws like this could spell the end of the internet as we know it. Facebook was a loser overall since its ham-fisted blocking of news links ended up blocking its own pages as well, not to mention crucial public health information amidst a global pandemic. Anyone arguing Facebook has too much power surely appreciated the fact that no one proved this more than Facebook itself with that move. Will this save journalism? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. I'm just not sure what the repercussions will be. It's something we've wanted to see for years now, that fact that they're profiting off of all the media generated by all these print outlets, but they're not getting recompensed in any way. It's kind of like your Spotify and you're playing music, but you don't have to pay any royalties. You have people sharing all this news information created by the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, on and on and on, the BBC, and yet those companies aren't making any money off of it. You know, they should get some royalties. Now, how do you do that? How do you stop people from not simply creating bots to share stories that thus generate money for the server? That's a problem Spotify faces in terms of album play. That's a problem Facebook and, and, and uh, Twitter and everybody else will have to face. But it seems like if it's really popular content and you're profiting from it, you didn't create it, and it's not original, you should have to pay for it. There should be a royalty involved. And that's what they're trying to do here. I don't know if they figured it out, but it has to be figured out. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem here is that, you know, people read the headlines, right? Number one. So, you know, a, a short excerpt, not the whole story, but like the headline line and just a, you know, a paragraph or two or not even like a sentence or two about the story, you don't need the story anymore. Meanwhile, you have all the advertisers saying, you know, newspapers, we don't really need to advertise with you. We're just going to advertise on Facebook and Google. Okay. Uh, and you know what? That's a problem because, you know, all of these newspapers and these magazines and these news outlets are saying, hey, Google, Facebook, you're stealing all our all our revenue. And you're right. also making revenue by people coming to your website to read the headlines that we're generating. But at the same time, 
the internet does not work with a pay for link scenario. It's not supposed to be right. a pay and for Facebook, link. Facebook, Facebook isn't choosing to share a story from the New York Times. A user is. Yes. And they could be linking to my blog page, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's it's complicated. It's hard. We haven't figured it out yet. This next story is really big, though. I wonder what you're going to think about this. What are people talking about at the European film market? Kill fees. International buyers are upset about the recent trend of streamers paying big bucks to snap up movies that were already sold to a number of international distributors. For example, Apple paid $25 million for the Sundance hit Coda. And suddenly, a film that was backed by distributors and then turned into a festival hit is taken away from them. Now, they're discussing concerns that film sales may include a kill fee if a movie goes to a streamer or major studio. It's not just paranoia. The idea has been floated by U.S. talent agencies. Is this a big deal or a big whoop, Sperling? It's uh, actually, I think it's kind of a big deal. I think, uh, and here's why. It's a changing of the way business is done. And whenever business gets changed, whenever a contractual business uh, gets changed this way, where where people say, hey, the contracts were, were written one way, but we now see that behavior has changed and therefore we have to change the contracts, that, that winds up being a big deal. I mean, essentially what you had is uh, Gaumont Pathé, which helped make Coda because they they made the first, the, the French film that Coda is based on, uh, they were going to release the film in France and in other European territories. They're basically saying, well, you know, hey, now we can't do that because Apple purchased it and they want worldwide rights to stream the film on Apple Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus. Well, yeah, that doesn't really help us because now we can't release the movie theatrically in our own territories. Uh, And, you know, we want more than just the amount of money we put into the film. We wanted to make a profit on it. So this kill fee will actually be an expense that anybody acquiring a film for a streamer will have to take into consideration. That's what makes it a big deal. No, no. It, the, fact, the fact is they're telling the distributors around the world, you take all the risk, we get all the reward. You back a movie that the movie wouldn't happen or be made without you. But if you do that, and then we take it to Sundance and it catches fire and we can make more money with somebody else, screw you. You will get a modest kill fee rather than a piece of a hit movie. Now, if the movie doesn't take off, if it gets poor reviews and nobody else wants it, well, then you're stuck with it. So well, you don't we don't know what the kill the fee is. You don't get, yes. Well, in the stories, it talks about a modest kill fee. Oh, well, it's not, you're going to make that. a lot okay. of money because it's a hit. No, they just want to pay you off and get you to go away. You maybe get your money back, but you're not going to get a big profit. That's for sure. I'd and be interested to know though, whether, whether somebody, you had a piece of a hit film, what would you rather have a kill fee or a piece of a film that looks like it's going to be a hit? And if they say the only time you get to keep the film you actually made, it wouldn't have happened without you is if doesn't do well, <laughs> then you can have your movie. If it does really well, you're out of luck. That's terrible. Well, it's well, a horrible. It's like Wall Street where you we profit, we keep the money. We lose money, you pay. We're talking about movies that wouldn't get made. If you want to make a movie and not sell it off to foreign, you have that right today. You want to hope you're going to sell it to Apple or anybody? Right. Half the time you couldn't get the movie made unless you sold off pre-sales to foreign, right? But now you're telling them, okay, we're going we're gonna to make the movie happen by using your money, but if it works out well, you're screwed, and you don't get the movie. That's not fair in any well, way, Well, generally, shape, or kill fees are supposed to actually be somewhat punitive, meaning— this, this is not. This is not punitive. This is not to stop them from selling it to streamers. It's just to shut the other people up and say, the point is, they helped create a, hit, a film that looks like a hit, and now they don't get the film. 
But if it's not a hit, if it gets poor reviews and Apple and Amazon and Netflix sniff at it and go, no, thank you, then you can have it. Sure. Take it. (laughs) That's horrible. That means you're never going to win. Well, speaking of money, that brings us to our next story, I guess. Uh, This is a horrible segue, but uh, streaming music continues to power recent growth in North America. Overall, recorded music grosses past $12 billion. Naturally, the music industry as a whole, by the way, took a severe hit since live music was essentially non-existent. So overall, grosses are way down versus 2019. But streaming remains a bright spot for the fifth year in a row. The overall take increased $1 billion for almost 10%, or I should say, or almost 10%. Uh, Streaming accounts for 83% of revenue right now. And no wonder paid subscribers to services like Spotify and Amazon hit 75 million people in the US, or 75 million accounts, I should say. A huge jump of 15 million people in just one year. I keep saying people, but the reality is, it could just be accounts. Huh? I say, I say that because I happen to know people who share Spotify logins with like 15 people. Well, you're saying One there's a lot more people than that. Well, I don't think you could yeah. share it with 15 people. Aren't there blocks for that many different devices? They all have limits on devices that you can yes. use on the same account. Th- there are limits. And I've heard that people like complaining, oh, Joe's listening now. And, oh, you know, <laughs> like, like they shared it with too many people because I can't get in anymore. And I'm like, how about you just pay? Well, that's a lot of room to grow then. So that's a good sign. So I think it is a big deal. The fact that they grew last year when people weren't commuting, we were worried that maybe people wouldn't listen to music. We thought at first it would explode. Then we said, oh, wait, they're not traveling. They're not driving. They're not commuting. They're not exercising outdoors as much or going to the gym. Maybe streaming will go down, but it didn't. We have a big jump in new accounts and people paying for recorded music. So I think it's a really good sign. There's still a lot of room for growth. That brings us to the new documentary film, Alan V. Farrow. It's generating tons of press. Dylan Farrow thanks the world for letting her story be heard. Ronan Farrow denounces Woody Allen yet again and has work in uncovering abusive Hollywood figures like Harvey Weinstein to back it up. Woody and his wife, Suni Previn, denounced the documentary and said the filmmakers had no interest in hearing from both sides and gave them only a cursory few days to respond to numerous allegations. But Woody has was heard in uh, I guess he's heard in this multi-part series since it used quotes from Alan's audiobook and by quotes the actual recordings of his new memoir Apropos of Nothing that's the name of the memoir Apropos of Nothing and now the publisher is threatening to sue HBO and the filmmakers for unauthorized use of their material big deal or big whoop Well, I think it's a big whoop because I think the lawsuit won't go anywhere. Uh, In the first episode, they used about three minutes of audio from the book. Well, the audio book is 744 minutes long. So even if they use 12 minutes in all, uh, that's a substantial amount of the book. But I would say about a third of the book deals with Mia and Dylan and all this sort of stuff in one context or another, because I I did read the book. Um, So I don't think 12 minutes out of 744 minutes would constitute unfair use. It doesn't seem like a, a majority or a big bunch of the, of the, of the audio book, nor would it stop people from saying, oh, I don't want to rent this book or buy this book. So I don't think they have a fair use leg to stand on, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, one story said, well, you can only use 10 seconds. That's what fair use is. I go, no, that's, that, that's not true. You can use, it's a percentage of the article. You can't be a substantial portion of the article or song or movie, or whatever it is. But I think it's sort of a variable decision based on how long the overall work is and what you're quoting from. 
I haven't watched this at all. I'm not going to get into that story. Uh, it's ugly and messy on all sides. But in terms of fair use, I don't, I don't think they've got a case. And if yeah. you listen to the book, well, well, boy, <laughs> Woody Allen is not is not his own best advocate. I'll tell you that much. Well, everybody says that Woody Allen, you know, you're right, is not his own. Like he just right. But he, it's why it's why I believe him. It's why I, I I buy a fair amount of what he says because he clearly is incapable of couching his terms or phrases or language to sort of make himself look good. He he refuses to do that. He seems he can't do that. And so he says things. You go, oh God, really, really? You're going to talk about her mother? You're going to do this? I'm talking about uh, uh, Mia Farrow's mother. You're going to talk about this? Oh, oh God, it's embarrassing. It's cringeworthy, but it makes the things he does say a little more be- believable because he certainly isn't couching his stuff to make himself look good by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that you know, for me, they they didn't have. You know, there seems to be a lot of people saying, "Hey, you know, they they really only went to Woody Allen and and his team, like with and said you have like two weeks or not well, even they, a few they, days." They, they claim they reached reached out to them like a year ago, and they confirmed with his office that they received the request. That was something I saw yesterday. Um, so they claim to have reached out once before, and then once again right before they finished. That's what they say. But at but the end of the day. They, they just said that, they weren't interested in hearing from him. Right, but if you and I were going to make a documentary, what is one of the things we would have to do? If we were going to, well, we would any, want, we would want to do, or or wanted, we'd have to get permission, license the the content. I mean, it's in other words, we'd have to license go and, the content. No, not no, you would not need to license the content from his audiobook. You use a snippet from the audiobook. No, you wouldn't. Or at least you can get use permission. a clip. You can no, not at all. That's what fair use is. You can do it without getting permission. You make a a documentary about his abuse. You can use a thirty second clip from Manhattan to show him in a relationship with a seventeen year old girl. You can show that depiction well, in the movie. Sh- That's what fair use is. You do not need permission in certain contexts. You can use a snippet of songs. You can use what a I'd piece of a movie. I'd be interested to know. They are using clips of Woody Allen's movies. I'd be interested. They are. They, know- didn't, they didn't get permission. No, absolutely not. No, no, it's not. not that's but, not debatable. You can the people do it all the of. time. At the end, it says courtesy of like all those, all those uh, clips, well, you know, it, but you do not need that. You can quote a book. You can quote a movie. You can quote a song. You can do that. That is fair. That's what fair use is all about. In the context of a documentary about a per, about about Woody Allen, you can't show twenty minutes of Manhattan necessarily, but you can show clips from it. Uh, you know, ten se- a twenty second, a thirty second clip. Of course, that's what we. You know, that, that those clips are made available to the world. Also, by the way, they put them out. They put up the trailer. They put out clips all available online, intended to promote it. And documentary filmmakers can use them. If you go over the line, you use too much of it, you use too much of the score, you use too much of the film, then you are going beyond fair use. But you don't need permission. Even if you go to the bother of getting it, it's not something that's necessary. That's what fair use is. Well, we're creative comments. You can totally copy and play. You know what? You could play. You could could rip us off. We're creative comments. We're free. Uh, but now Creative Commons doesn't mean you should just take the whole thing wholesale and copy it. It means that you should credit it when you use a portion of it and do things like that and give full credit to where it came from and stuff like that. I was trying to be funny, but apparently oh. I have failed oh, okay. yet again. <laughs> That's why you didn't host the Golden Globes. That is correct. In fact, Michael, that wraps up Big Dealer Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is our popular segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. Now, this week, as promised, we're going to be speaking with Stacey Perman from the Los Angeles Times. In fact, 
A blistering story in the LA Times by Stacey and her colleague Josh Rotenberg detailed that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has no black members. None. Zero. This story didn't just make headlines. It pushed the famously insular group behind the Golden Globes to pledge a change. Now, Stacey Perman is a staff writer with the Los Angeles Times, and she joins us to discuss uh, not only her investigative pieces, but also uh, how they shaped this year's ceremony. Stacey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Stacey, the story is really fun to read. We have a link to it in our show notes. Um, and clearly, uh, it's a very insular group. They don't usually talk to the press, but there are people inside the Hollywood Foreign Press Association who want change to take place. And I think that's how you found those people and got them to talk to you and confide in you and give you that information that you needed uh, about the ethical lapses at the HFPA, the the self-dealing and all the stuff that really has uh, caught the attention of so many media outlets. It was carried everywhere. How did you find out who those people were that are ready to see some change take place there and were willing to talk to you? Well, that's a good question. And I want to be careful because we don't want to reveal our sources as journalists, obviously. Um, So let me just take a step back. I think for years and years and years, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association um, has been mocked. I mean, even from the the stage of the, the ceremony itself, if you've watched the past few years with Ricky Gervais, he's, you know, thrown some some sharp daggers at the, at the organization from the stage itself within the industry within hollywood it's kind of an open secret the group itself has had this uh, reputation as being sort of mysterious and not transparent and as freeloaders and easily swayed and influenced by junkets and 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 presents and you know gifts and parties and things like that but the show goes on and it, it's kind of a wink wink and a nod nod and, and this is the 88 or 89 or 87 members of the hollywood 87 yeah there's and they are who they are journalists well, I mean, ostensibly, yes. I mean, they started as journalists. Um, they're, not, as I said, they're not very transparent. They don't even list the names of the the members on their website and the outlets that they work at. There are indeed journalists working for credible international media, but there's also, as we found, a lot of um, interesting characters, shall we say? There's a former Mister Universe. There's a guy that does the um, art of Chinese face reading. There's a former Miss Teen Filipina. There's a former Miss Belgium. There's there's quite a few beauty pa- beauty pageant um, people in the organization as well. And then how did you, and so then you were able, you realize there's discontent somehow. Uh, there's there's money being made. There are people who are making more than a million dollars a year by sitting on committees. They're being paid to watch movies, which uh, I guess I do too when I get paid 50 bucks to write a review. But right. they are being paid lots of money to be a member of the HFPA. Right. Well, one of the things we found, so, you know, there were, like I said, there were all these, you know, rumors and wink, wink and nod, nods, and the show went on, you know, business as usual. But I think we, uh, a a couple of things happened. Last summer, a Norwegian journalist based in LA sued the organization, calling it a cart, you know, a a cartel that it operated um, uh, as a cartel, that it had institutionalized corruption. So that was um, an opening salvo, so to speak. From there, we really hit the ground running. You know, the challenge was, um, uh, you know, all of these you know, rumors had been surrounding the organization. So the challenge for us was how do we move this story forward and how do we get the receipts? And there is a group of members, they, they generally don't talk to the press, which is interesting because they are largely made up of press. Um, <laughs> but they are shall we say, reform-minded and want to see change. Um, you'd mentioned the payments. That was a big part of our reporting. 
was getting the financial documentation to find that it's a nonprofit organization. They do give a lot of money to charity. The, the largest amount of the money they receive every year is from NBC for the broadcast of the Golden Globes. They're sitting on about $50 million in cash. Last year, they received 20, about 27, nearly $28 million for the Golden Globes. And while they've made a big public show, and it's very laudable to give um, money to charities, they've also been increasing the rate of money that they pay themselves. They've created a number of committees, as you mentioned, to watch television, to be on the archives committee, the history committee, and to contribute to their own website. Last year, they paid their members nearly $2 million um, you know, for, the, for, for the, these activities. Uh, who knew they had a website? I, I did not know they had a website. <laughs> well, everybody sharing articles, but yeah, everybody's got a website. But good for them. Who knew? Um, so the exciting thing was you put a lot of effort into this story. You showed the bizarre lack of diversity. Apparently, there are no journalists in Africa that want to join the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and yet there's not a single black member. And you wrote a story, and very satisfyingly, of course, it was picked up by everyone. But it's really having an impact. It hasn't changed the Golden Globes yet, but they are feeling the heat. Yes, I mean, that is something very interesting. I mean, one of the things we've heard since the article came out and now subsequent that the show aired um, on Sunday is that this time feels a little bit different. So the the information that we reported that there is not a single black member really um, gained currency. And that's not surprising, given the times we're living living in. I mean, the Oscars a few years ago received similar criticism with the Oscar So White campaign. And they took, you know, steps to address that and diversify their members. Also, given last year, last summer, rather, um, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the tremendous Black Lives um, Movement that you know swept across the country and the world, really, where a lot of organizations took a hard look at their practices. So, in 2021, the organization still has not a single Black member. So, you know, what we're seeing in the wake of our investigation. Um, a lot of people in Hollywood have come out calling for reform, calling for um, inclusion and d- diversity. You have the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Producers Guild, Time's Up, a number of you know individuals um, have, have made that call. And it really was the subtext last night uh, um, during the show. I mean, it was just not escapable. Well, but your story, the first story was about, you know, this, this lawsuit and the kind of self-dealing, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the second story that almost gained more traction, which is, oh, by the way, not only is all that, you know, is it corruption or, you know, some some non-transparent act- financial activity going on here, but uh, by the way, they're also, they're like probably as- They're racist. Th- yeah, th- they're about <laughs> as diverse as a box of, you know, saltines. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, would you, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that certainly took on, took on a life of its own, for for sure, for sure. Well, and it also seemed to me that that in 2016 they made, and I'm gonna guess 3.5 million dollars, under four million dollars in 2016, and now with their deal with NBC, they're making 27 million dollars a year. That's a huge leap in just four years. So it seems like all of a sudden there's a lot of money, and usually when when that happens, a, a lot of well, not very good things can happen. 
Well, I mean, definitely they've, they've had a significant bump in the amount of money that they, they receive. And in our reporting, you know, we went through a lot of financial documents and what has also increased is the amount of money that they seem to pay themselves. They've created a number of committees where people make, you know, thousands of dollars, uh, you know, a year, people sit on more than one committee. Um, they, they, um, you know, have this website where they contribute, you know, articles and all sorts of different facets of the website that that can earn them, you know, for writing articles, you can earn up to almost close to $3,000 a month. Um, and in the reporting, we also showed, you know, we had emails of discussions between the, the former president, I mean, about the pressure that that members were putting on him to, you know, come up with ways to remunerate members. So, you know, a lot of it was, you know, all in the, in the documentation. <laughs> You talked about how they they tripled the amount of money they're paying out to members within the last three years, I believe, is one of the figures that we had, or almost tripled. And Correct. it's and, and people are saying, "Look, there's no business. We need more money because you know there's the 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 newspaper and the print media industry has died. So some of them may actually be you know hurting financially, and that's what their argument is. Well, we're helping our members in this difficult time of the pandemic, uh, but the fact is." You know, they've got 87 members and they don't want to add any new members, people of color or not, because that would mean less money to go around. That's one reason they're not going to want to add in a bunch of new people, isn't it? Well, that's certainly been a criticism amongst people inside the organization, as well as journalists from the outside who've, who've tried to gain admittance over the years as well. Well, and, and let me ask you this. So you, you started, I guess, last summer working on this. Is that correct? Yeah, about six months on this, yes. And, and when you're putting a story like this together, I would imagine you're, are you working on other stories as well? I can't imagine. Of course. Yeah, so working on other stories, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, things move at, you know, whatever pace that they move at. Um, but this was the main focus. So sometimes put it down, work on something else, but um, always coming back to this. But this was my main focus for the past six months. And, and when you're doing that, is there... I guess you knew that the the Golden Globes were going to happen sometime in January, and if not January, February or March, it happened to be the end of February this this time. So that's in a way some kind of deadline, even though I guess technically you could run it after the Golden Globes. Was there was there pressure to get it out beforehand? Well, I think we definitely wanted it to run, you know, before the Golden Globes. There there were, you know, other potential benchmark times, but really what the overriding consideration was, did we have the reporting? Did we have the story? You can always wait and you want to get it right. And how amazing that they gave you all that time to work on it, because that's what it takes, that sort of investment by the editorial team to let you take the time, call the people, build a relationship, gain their trust to finally get them to fess up and say, okay, here are the receipts. Here's something I can give you that's hard and cold and factual that you can build upon. Right. I mean, that's what, that's what journalism, <laughs> journalism is or what it's supposed used to, to be. be. Used to be, used to be, used to be once upon a time. Here's the problem. Uh, the ratings for the Golden Globes are as strong as ever, kind of. They've they've held pretty steady. Meanwhile, the Emmys are, are falling below them, and the Oscars are falling too. So the Golden Globes is becoming closer and closer to the Oscars. Not there yet, but it's bigger and bigger in terms of its draw. It's also an easy group of people as you detail in your story. It's less than 90 people. It's very easy to target that group and win their votes rather than, say, SAG, which has tens of thousands of members. That's just almost impossible to reach on any financially reasonable level. So the power of the Globes hasn't changed one whit. They're a small group. They're easy to influence. 
they're viable in a way. You don't say that, but they're certainly swayed by a trip to Paris that lets them say, hey, Emily in Paris, what a charming new show that is. Let's name it a nominee for best comedy. So with the ratings as strong as ever, the money as strong as ever, uh, they can kind of withstand the heat, can't they? And unless Hollywood says we're going to step away and not come to your show anymore, they're not going to change. Yeah, that, that has been the case. You know, it's a big money maker for a lot of people. It's a popular show. And so they've been able to soldier on despite, you know, the whispers and so on and so forth. But I think what we're seeing, again, I, without a crystal ball, um, in the wake of these articles, there's been a tremendous reaction from various corners in the industry. I mean, even from the stage of the Golds itself, you saw numerous people, in, 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 including the hosts, make comments. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to be business as usual. Do you, are you hearing from, I mean, because ultimately, if if the studios and the networks and the, and the creative talent didn't show up for this, it, they wouldn't be able to continue. And uh, there are, I mean, every, the big joke was when Johnny Depp was uh, nominated for, I think, The Tourist. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess he was on stage a year or two later with Ricky Gervais. And Ricky Gervais turned to him and said, did you even see The Tourist? Which was kind of a self-referential joke because people who remembered a few years earlier, he had been nominated. And Johnny Depp just mm-hmm. kind of said, yeah, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> like, like, if they just stopped coming, is there any thought? Or, or are you hearing any rumblings that maybe that will happen? I mean, I guess what the real yeah. question is, what does the industry get out of the Globes? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. I think what they get out of it, first of all, everybody wants to win an award. That's nice. But yeah. I think, you know, above and beyond that, it's really money. There's this whole interconnected universe of money attached to the awards. You have... Um, you know, it's become a big marketing tool for the fashion, industry. Fashion and designers. Everybody. And, yeah. you know, there's a whole um, group of con- awards consultants that get paid. I mean, that was one of the things we reported in the story. We had a contract from one of them from a Globe season. They get money as a baseline consultant. They get five figures for every nomination and subsequent win to that. So everyone has a piece piece of the action and you know it's a it's in some ways you know an arbiter and a launching pad for the oscars the big the big brass ring so um you know this has been an incentive for for years um and and with lack of any incentive to to make any subsequent reforms or change but i think you know sort of laying out all of these scenarios that we did in our reporting has made people take a second look and a different look from a different perspective. Absolutely. I bet by next year they will have five new members who are people of color, maybe people who are black. <laughs> and uh, But unless there's an outside auditor or outside accounting or some outside firm to look at the finances and provide some you know, nonpartisan oversight of the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I don't know if their self-dealing is going to change too much. But I'm from Bermuda. That's where I was born. So mm-hmm. if they want to increase their geographical diversity, I'm available. I tried, but they didn't want to let me in. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens this year. They have no one from Bermuda. So, you know. Do we'll you see. follow up a but story I, like this, Stacey? Of well, course. We've, we have done numerous follow-ups um, all week, you know, based on, you know, a variety of new information. And we'll continue to do so as, as, as new information comes in. We definitely. 
Well, certainly in any story you're working on to say, boom, you know, is there one new story you're looking at or things that you can talk about? Like, we'd love to know more about this or that or the other thing. I want to be careful. Um, yeah, we're definitely looking at a few interesting um, angles. So stay tuned. I'll say that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but now that this is over, what do you work on now? I guess is what Michael was really, really no, asking no. is what's what's the next big story? Oh, there's a lot of big stories in Hollywood. Um, uh, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, thank you very much for taking the, the time to join us uh, this week and to tell us how you put this story together. I mean, it was one of those stories that when it hit, it was on the, the front page of the LA Times at the end of my driveway. And I knew the second I, I read that headline, I thought, oh, this is, this is going to make some waves. And sure enough, it was quoted by every news organization on the planet. So thank you very much for telling us how you put the whole story together and how you worked on it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that was great of Stacey to join us. That was fascinating. And I'm sure that story is far from dead. There's going to be a lot of new stuff to cover in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, I always love to hear how people put... <laughs> put I know, I, I ruined your transition. I ruined your segue. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I really would like to thank Stacey and everybody at the LA Times for for coming on and, and, and uh, or at least you know, allowing us to find out how they put that story together. It was an important story in, in the entertainment industry. Uh, it was well put together, well documented. And uh, I agree with you. It is far from dead. Unlike some of our obituaries. That's right. We've got three people who made the most of their talents and, and helped lift up others as well. That's the through line in our obituary section today. First, actor Douglas Turner Ward died at the age of 90. He co-founded the Negro Ensemble Company here in New York City. Uh, he's one of the uh, actor, director, and playwright. He was a key member of that, of that ensemble. It was a, a great company. Uh, it began because he published an op-ed in the New York Times saying, when will black America have its voice heard on the stage? A people who worked at a, a major foundation saw that and said, hey, and they came to him and said, here's some money, start an ensemble. And by God, they were off. And it then they hired all white people to play black characters. So, <laughs> you mean, well, they do have on a white, they did have a white accountant and they did. And people gave them some grief for that, but they were a long-term players in the success of the Negro Ensemble Company. So it was not an all black group throughout the, the board of directors and everywhere. Uh, and he, Felt he found the right person for that job and he stuck with him. Uh, but he did get grief for that. But they almost immediately enjoyed critical and commercial success with shows like The River Niger, which won the Tony for Best Play, TV dramas, and the Pulitzer Prize winning A Soldier's Play in 1981. And he nurtured so many careers Denzel Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, Angela Bassett, Felicia Rashad, and many, many others. The story of Douglas Turner Ward is that he had this company. He was the big kahuna. He could have made it all about him directing and him starring in his plays, and he never did that. He was always about finding the best work, finding the best people, and lifting up everyone around him. Well, also uh, passing away was Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Now, he had quite the life. He died at 101, and uh, he is, I mean, first of all, he is a poet. Okay, I guess we could start there, but he is the... He's responsible for City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. 
Right. That's like the heart of San Francisco in some ways. He's a, an important poet, but really he empowered so many other artists, just like Douglas Turner Ward did with his position at the Negro Ensemble. Lawrence Ferlinghetti did it with City Lights. He, and he also became a publisher. He published and championed the Beats, including Allen Ginsberg, which promptly got Ferlinghetti arrested when he published the poem Howl, which was labeled indecent writing, to which Ginsberg probably responded, thank you. Ferlinghetti's most famous work is the collection A Coney Island of the Mind, which contained a poem a U.S. congressman denounced as blasphemous, to which Ferlinghetti probably said, thank you. The collection went on to sell over a million copies, according to City Lights, making it one of the most successful poetry collections of all time. The bookstore became an institution. Readings, book signings, events. It's now an official landmark, historic landmark of San Francisco. When COVID-19 forced them to close their doors, temporarily, they hoped, they said, you know what? This might not be temporary. We may have to shut down for good. And they raised $450,000 in four days. That's how important City Lights is to San Francisco and to all those writers around the world. That's why there's a movie about Ferlinghetti. He's a publisher, a poet, an independent bookstore owner, and a free speech advocate. They even made a movie about his fight over, you know, Howl and all on the beat poets and all that. It was so, called Howl, I believe. That's that's right. It's yeah. a, he's a major, major figure in literary circles and uh, 101. What a way to go. Well, dying at the age of 66 was Oscar-winning sound editor Alan Robert Murray. The most nominated sound editor in history with 10 Oscar nominations. That's pretty great. So it's a shame he died at 66, but 10 Oscar nominations, the most ever. He's a two-time Oscar winner for American Sniper and Letters to Iwo Jima. He shared those awards with Bub Alsman, who Murray worked with on 50-plus films. He also spent decades collaborating with director Clint Eastwood. You probably noticed American Sniper and Letters to Iwo Jima, both directed by Clint. They worked on 32 films together way early back when he started his directing career, almost right up to the end. And uh, he was mentored by Howard Beals, who worked with Cecil B. DeMille. So back in the 40s, Alan Robert Murray worked with Howard Beals, who was like a private, you know, the personal sound editor for Cecil B. DeMille towards the end of his career. But so he links back to the sound editor era. All three of his kids work in the biz. And most recently, the stuff he worked on, the Star is Born remake and the Kevin Costner TV series Yellowstone. So he's working right up to the end, 100 plus credits. And you can see that torch being passed. Cecil B. DeMille to Howard Beals to Alan Robert Murray and to all the sound editors and other people that came on after him. So what a cool, fascinating career. That's kind of just makes makes your heart beat fast. That's Hollywood, baby. You know, you can link one guy right back to the silent era. That's pretty cool. You know, I wish we had a sound editor for this show. <laughs> so do I. You know, just to edit the darn thing. Uh, but you know what? We do edit it every week just for you. And in fact, if you want to listen to our next show, you should probably, or even this show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Microsoft Marketplace, Listen Notes. I'm finding, you know, all of these places where we're, we're giving away everywhere. In fact, you could rate and review the show in any one of those podcast aggregators. It does help us out when you do. Uh, again, that information, ways to subscribe to us can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all the stories we've talked about today on today's episode. In fact, you can find links to Stacey Perman's story on the Golden Globes and the HFPA there. Uh, Josh Rotenberg also wrote that story, but I'd like to thank Stacey for joining us today and the Los Angeles Times. 
Uh, you can email us dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888 567 SAND. That's 888 567 We're on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Again, all of this information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's, I'd love to join the hfpa.com. Uh, that's I'm actually from Bermuda. True. I'm from Bermuda. I'm a foreign press association person. Well, uh, okay. You know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, which, by the way, should get him into the HFPA, uh, you can you know, go to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.